You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica, episode 50. I'm Jessica Pearson, certified life coach. And I'm Beth Barnett Babel, integrative nutrition therapist. What's up, Beth? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't even put a note what to talk about, but I was just, I was like, spring exclamation point. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's an interesting one. Yeah. It is beautiful. Know, just, I'm just, loving it's, it. It's been, yeah. We have beautiful weather here in Austin, Texas the last few days. So. Yes. I actually got to a hundred percent enjoy my weekend with not a lot of extra chores or errands. It was just all magical spring weather. I raced my son who's 13 on these teeny tiny scooters that were too small for both of us. And I won. Anyways, it was all amazing. I was, I (laughs) pretended to be 13 on Saturday and it was amazing. That's so fun. Yeah, it was. (sighs) Okay. Well, before we get started, we would love to invite you, our listeners to come join us inside foundations. This is the course for learning how to eat normal meaning we aren't doing any more weird diets and we're also not living in total effort mode. Learn how to understand your body and mind and how to treat them inside our interactive course. There's no other course like this on the planet that offers the combination of nutrition and mindset with one-on-one connection with us at a price point that is so amazing. Go check it out and join today at pathnutrition.com backslash foundations. I'll make a little plug here for myself. I love the interactions in this course. It's so fun. I love it. And in the past, we would do Facebook groups and it was hard. And now I'm like, oh no, like these are really good questions that people are struggling with that they wouldn't have asked in a Facebook group unless they were like all the extrovert people. And I just love it. It's so fun. And yeah, yeah. there's more intimacy and it allows people to be themselves without having to be vulnerable if that's not for you. Yeah. It's as exciting as I thought it would be. I met my expectations. I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. So instead of an ad this week, we have a person here, a guest speaker or a guest with us, Carrie, and we're going to discuss with her questions about weight loss, weight loss drugs, and more. Jessica? Yeah. So Carrie is actually a client who's given us permission (laughs) to say that. She is also, from what I know about her, she is an adventurer. She's traveled all over the world. She is so insanely smart. I call her high achieving, but she doesn't call herself that. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just a human woman, a human woman living in current times. And like all of us, she's got her own set of personal challenges and struggles, but she's real, which is why we're having her here because she's representing all of you to talk about some big topics that have been buzzworthy for the last few months. So hello, Carrie. Hi, guys. We're so excited you're here. I feel like with that intro, you should play I'm Every Woman behind. Let's do it. Cody, add a song. Every Woman. I'm not a singer, so sorry about that. Yeah, so this this came about because Carrie emailed me and she had listened to a different podcast. Rude. No, I'm just kidding. So you would listen to a podcast. It was the Ezra Klein show. And the title of that episode is The Hungry Brain by Stephen. I don't know how to say that last name. You know, I'm even worse at name pronunciation Stephen G. than you. <laughs> Stephen G. <laughs> and it was the podcast is also about how our brains were not designed for this kind of food, meaning our current 
food environment. And so I feel like, and then they also talk about some of the weight loss drugs, which we've touched on, but Carrie had actually said, I'd like to talk more about, like, I want to know more. And because we share similar values, I want to know y'all's opinion on what these guys have to say and just the information that they're sharing. And can we like talk about it? And I said, yes, let's you and I talk about it. And then when we talked about it, I said, will you please come on the podcast and have this conversation again so that everybody can hear this? Because I think it's really important information. And just really quickly, so in the email you said, it feels like for so many of us who care about weight loss, these medications might be our only realistic chance. Dark. (laughs) But you're not the only one thinking it. Yeah. Everybody's thinking that, right? So that's, I mean, I, I told Beth in the last podcast, I was like, I thought it. I was like, are we out of a job? No. Um, you know, so it's like, it's normal for our brain to go there. It's this new thing. And it was funny because I felt like Beth and I have beaten this with a stick. And Carrie was like, no, you guys, I want to talk more about this. And so I thought, okay, well, we'll do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> but I also just wanted to point out a note because you were like, that's dark. But you had also said, This is not to say right now I'm focusing much on trying to make my body smaller. Right now I'm actually putting my energy towards learning how to cook on Sundays so that I have nutritious and complete meals and snacks available to me throughout the week. No calorie counting, just trying to get real food in my body in a consistent way and with some non-real food when I feel like it and it's going quite well. So it's like one side of your brain was saying like, is this the only answer? It was kind of like going down the dark spiral. But then, you know, your actions and what you're actually doing sounds great. Yeah, it was great until it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, then I got COVID. And so food, the idea of prepping any food, when I feel kind of miserable and food makes me feel better. So, yeah, I mean... Well, that's normal. And I tell a lot of clients, there's phases of nourishment. And when we are sick, you're not expected to be like in your regular routine of like, I don't want to eat salad when I'm sick. That sounds terrible. You know, Mm. so it's normal that we go into these kind of phases or cycles, depending on where we're at in our life. So I just want to throw that out there. It's okay to not eat salad when you're sick. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to a start of a podcast was starting to talk about that or no, it was like a news segment and I couldn't, I had to leave. It was like a news story about like why we eat the things that we eat when we're sick. And I was like, Oh, this is so fascinating. I'm so pumped. I have to like get out of my car and go because it was talking about that science of like why we don't want to eat a lot of the, our normal stuff whenever we get sick. So what I thought we would do is we'd kind of basically do the book report of this podcast episode and talk about some of these bullet points, and then we can all just kind of jam out on some of these topics. How does that sound? Good. I mean, I think my biggest thing, and this is something that I had been thinking about even when we started working together, is I'm a person who's been overweight almost my entire life and a woman who's been overweight almost my entire life. So you can imagine some of the things that I've dealt with. And we're starting to talk about obesity in a different way, obesity as a disease. And I feel like a lot of the discussion around these meds has been about how medicine doesn't really have an answer for obesity. And maybe that's part of the reason why everybody's flipping out about this, because we just haven't found something that works consistently for people and that this might be something that is more effective than what we've found in the past. I remember on the first day we met talking about having read this book that said 95% of people who undergo a diet that is about eating less calories, and I've also seen other places like a diet in general, you're 95% more likely to weigh more a year after you undertake something like that than you are to weigh less. And... Well, I'll pause you there. I literally just finished reading a book all about fat loss by Ben Carpenter, I believe it was. Anyways, and he goes and finds that study. And that study is from like the 50s. It is a really really old study. And there is, 
it basically talks about, yes, that in, in some essence, that statistic is true, but what it's based on is nothing really very good, but we keep repeating the same thing over and over and over. We keep repeating that stat. And so then people feel defeated before they even get started by knowing that I will try to find that to follow up on it. But it is essentially, I was like, oh yeah. Cause we've talked about this before in the past, Jessica, like about this, you know, 95% of diets fail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, and so we're like, oh, well it must be true. But then there's actually what that statistic is based on is insanely old. And the research behind it is actually not all that great, but that's not to say that diets are problematic. They do have issues and that a lot of people can't stay on them long-term because of a wide variety of reasons about human relationships with food and how we're evolved to think about food and calorie restriction in some people versus others. And so there is, there are problems with diets for sure. And they are challenging to be on because of the restriction. And yes, some people do gain well, Wait. because when they're so over-restrictive and people are trying to get fast, quick, overnight, 20-day results, it's like, yeah, you are causing havoc on your body. And so then it does. Which we're going to talk about these other things in here. But yeah, Carrie, did you want to finish your thought on that? No, that was my thought. Um, yeah. And also, I kind of did – I wasn't prepared to talk about obesity as a disease because I did ask Beth. I was like, when when people say that, like, what is that – what is the root of the disease? Are we talking about hormonal imbalances that can't be fixed by the way that we eat? Are we talking about psychological issues? It's like, what actually is the disease? Is it just the weight? Like, I don't know. I guess <laughs> – yeah, and I struggled with this answer when I answered you back on Marco Polo actually about it. And the way I think about it is is the end result is the disease state, but how we get there is different for different people because we have the influence of our genes plus the environment. Yeah. Can I just read this like official description of what the CDC says? Obesity is a complex disease that occurs when an individual's weight is higher than what is considered healthy for his or her height. So they're basically just being like, if your BMI is high, you have the disease of obesity. Yeah, but there's right. like so much that goes into it. It's just because you're larger doesn't always mean that you, your metabolics are off. But I guess that's where they talk about like metabolic disease. Anyways, we're going to go down a big rabbit hole if we continue down that <laughs> topic. So we'll save that for a different day. So now we really need to talk about this question about the drugs. Okay. And- <laughs> okay. So this, well, this pot, well, we're going to get to that too. So the podcast episode that Carrie listened to, it opens with an excellent topic where they talk about brain and food motivation. So there was a study showing that people's motivation for food is quite individual. It's a trait of what they call food reward responsiveness mm-hmm. or relative reinforcing value of food, meaning some people can open a bag of chips and have like five chips and move on with their lives. And other people feel an intense urge to just eat the entire bag. Like they cannot put it down until it's gone. So I thought that was interesting because it's like, is that innate? Are you born with that? Or is that developed based off the types of foods that we eat? And, you know, according to the study, they were saying, yeah, like all the rats were on the same page until we gave some of the rats some delicious chips. <laughs> and then they started to, you know, like the more of those types of foods they ate, the more they were motivated to go get them. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. But like, I feel like Carrie, you even said it to me. You're like, you seem like the type of person that could just have like one cookie or whatever. And I was like, it depends. I think I can be both. It just kind of depends on what the food is and where I'm at in that day or that moment in my life. I don't identify as someone that has to all the time. No. So I don't know. What are you, Beth? It depends. If you give me some cream gravy on literally anything, I will eat until I'm sick. But (laughs) everything else, I'd get tired of flavors. I, as the every woman, I feel I need to ask, what is cream gravy? <gasps> she, Carrie's, a, Carrie's a Midwesterner. Oh, God. I mean, is it just like if you were having biscuits and gravy? Is yes. That, but okay. you can literally put it on anything and everything. So 
Yes. My favorite is on those little thin pork chops that are breaded and fried and then mashed potatoes. Though when I grew up, we always had it with rice. So it was like gravy on the rice and the, the little pork chops. But then I became mm. to love it more on mashed potatoes. But anyways, and then in my school district that I went to outside of Fort Worth in junior high, you could get cream gravy every day. Uh, with mashed potatoes and two sourdough rolls for 90 cents. And so that was my diet for seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. <laughs> I love it so much. But I love I- just the regional aspect of like the different foods that we get attached to. Cause yeah. 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 People think of gravy as brown. And I'm like, no, I don't know what that is. I stuff. do That's not discriminate. Sauce. I like white gravy, brown <laughs> gravy. Give me all the gravies. I don't like brown gravy. Anyways, yeah, I get tired of flavors real quick. But if I think about what gravy is, which is what a lot of processed foods are, it's high fat, high carbohydrate because there's flour. You know, you have to make a roux. And then there's flour, butter, and milk. Yeah. I see potato chips and I You can't do anything. (laughs) Um, But the example was illustrative because he was talking about sitting across from another dude and there were chips in the middle of them. And the other dude said, oh, well, that would be just as arbitrary as whether or not I'm going to eat these chips. Of course, I know eating this whole thing of chips would be a terrible idea. And he was like, no, I've been thinking this entire time. Like I have an app open in my internal computer that is whether or not I'm going to eat these chips and whether what's a socially acceptable amount of chips to eat. That app is always open in my app. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating because I really have never had that social accepted need. I'm like, if I don't know, even when I'm doing something kind of like out of structure, it's like, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to go for it. So it's like that's all learned behavior, right? It's like somebody told you that you had to follow these food rules or people were going to think certain things. And so I don't know. I just find that all fascinating. But um, if I ate a whole, if we we're in a Mexican restaurant and you didn't touch the chips and I ate all the chips in the basket, you wouldn't think anything of it? No. I literally don't have a thought about it at all. What if they brought more chips and I ate two full baskets? I might be like, dang, girl, you, I'd be like excited for you. <laughs> But then, I don't know, later on, so this is something totally like my husband would do, although he doesn't eat corn anymore, but it's like he would do something like that and then later be like, oh, it feels so bad. And I'd be like, well, you made a choice. (laughs) Yeah. I say something to my kids because I know that they eat all the chips. Then the food that we ordered, they're going to be like, well, no, I'm not hungry. But then they'll be hungry like an hour later because corn chips don't last. (laughs) I'm like, dang it, now I got to feed you twice. (laughs) I was here doing the thing and now we're not doing the thing because you filled up on chips. So that's the only time I say anything is to my kids because I know I want them to eat some things that will last in their stomachs longer so I don't have to then recreate another meal time. I have had multiple people comment on the food that I'm eating where they're like, whoa, girl. And I'm like, what? Like, I just don't So I don't know. I think it is interesting. I guess, you know, different people are having their own judgments, but I've learned over time. I'm like, well, if they're judging me, that's on them. Like they have their own food stuff that they got to deal with. Like I don't take on anyone else's judgment about what I'm eating. Huh. Yeah. My husband is six foot tall, but does not weigh very much. And so what he's, what is that? Eight inches taller than me. And I can eat. We often, not as much these days, Thanks, perimenopause. But I, w- over the course of our 20-year relationship, we basically eat the same amount. And I, I've had many thoughts about it. And then I was like, well, oh, well, I do like eight times more activity than he does. So, yeah, I do need as much food as he does, even though he's so much taller than me. So Yeah. Yeah. Beth, you talking about if your kids are eating eating that way. I don't remember my parents ever saying anything like that to me and I'm still I feel like I'm learning to think that way now Mm. not that they shamed me all the time but I feel like I learned that shame somewhere that's immediately where I go versus like oh then I won't be hungry or I know for me corn messes me up like it's gonna hurt my stomach later yeah but I have to switch gears and make my mind go there instead of just like I'm terrible I'm eating all these chips right yeah yeah Yeah. 
Well, and unwinding it takes that practice. It's like that's your first unintentional thought that makes you feel shame. And then you're like, wait a second, I don't need to do this to myself. What's the real reason why I don't want to do this? Well, we should move on because <laughs> we have a lot to ground to cover. Okay. So we do, he talks about like one main reason that this can happen is because of our food environment. A lot mm-hmm. of our reward systems in our brain with food comes from the food in our environment. And Beth and I actually did do an episode on food environment previously, but we want to revisit it in the context of this conversation. Yeah, his was just a really polished scientific version of my explanation of the food environment, this podcast. I was like, oh, yeah, we've already talked about almost all of this minus the end where they talk about the drugs. So. Yeah. So it's just basically like the food that we have today Mm -hmm. is not the same food that humans had 75 years ago, not even 40 years ago. So all of the fats, proteins, sugars, it's all different. It's more refined. It's more concentrated. It's unfortunately lower quality. And it's not just the quality, but it's the amount. So he gave this amazing staggering statistic, which was grocery stores in 1980 had only 15,000 items in the store. And now, on average, grocery stores have 44,000. So it's like three times the amount of types of foods that we have access to. And they stimulate our motivational drive by releasing dopamine in the brain that generates this motivational response and learning that makes you more motivated in the future. And this is actually a really normal process, right? This is how our ancestors found food. They're hunting and gathering. And that process of the brain is what kept them going. It's why we're still here. But back then we had that was you were rewarded for finding calorie dense food because Uh it was necessary. And now we have calorie dense food, but it's not actually dense. (laughs) We have high calorie, low density food. And so our brain is just kind of like, what? I mean, I guess it's high dense as far as like, you're getting the sugar and the fat, but the quality is not there. So you're the most sugary things we would have eaten would have been, depending on your region, honey, syrup, cane, you know, something along those lines that created that sugar or fruit in that season or fat from an animal. But by and large, like we wouldn't have had that combination ever. And then once we started to figure out how to do grains, we would have gotten a high carbohydrate load from that. But there's a lot of B vitamins and there's, if you keep it all intact, there's fats in there. There's tons of nutrients in a whole grain that we were able to extract from it. But now that all that gets extracted out and then taken to a point where it overrides, overstimulates our brain. Yeah. I loved what he said. He called it, this is accentuating the seductiveness of the food, right? It's just making our brains desire it so much more. So it's like, yeah, the, the quantity of calories is there, but the quality is not. And we've talked about hyper palatable foods and how they just drive us to eat more and more of those things. But also, while it's driving us to eat more of the delicious, highly processed foods, your brain starts to sidetrack things like produce, right? It's like, oh, I don't really need to eat broccoli because what sounds good is noodles. (laughs) Right, exactly. No, that's exactly what happens is that sidetrack of, well, that food doesn't feel as good. Yeah, it teaches, it rewards your brain for the other stuff and you don't get any more reward for the things that we actually need. And these foods are so delicious and they're often inexpensive. They're being promoted by companies like Frito-Lay and Coca-Cola, don't come for us, but they have mass distribution all over the world, including in our schools. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And if you look at the last 10 to 15 years, how we've managed to ban things like cigarettes and how hard that was, but there's actually so few regulations on food. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what are we going to do? And I think that that he kind of talks about that at the end of the podcast. He's like, well, we're not going to be able to change the entire food industry. So let's just make a drug that helps us live with it. That's where I kind of went dark. I was like, wait, what? It's like, is this idiocracy? What's happening? <laughs> um, but it feels impossible. I mean, it just, when you, like all the facts that you have just spat out, I'm like, well, of course it feels impossible for me to choose broccoli over noodles. Yeah. 
I mean, I can empathize with that, but I also want to be like, so, <laughs> so what if it feels impossible? Go eat your broccoli, girl. <laughs> I mean, I saw a quote on Instagram. It was like, health is becoming a rebellion, right? Like we have to kind of rebel against what is actually currently the norm, which is eating. It's like, we have to kind of push back on what some of this stuff is saying and think for ourselves and say like, yeah, I know I like chips and like, we're not saying never have chips, but right. how, how do I get the things like produce and higher quality fats and proteins into my life and make that a priority. Mm-hmm. And if it does feel impossible, it's like, yeah, it's not going to feel comfortable if that's the way our brain has been wired, but it, it doesn't mean that it is impossible. It is possible. And does the drug make it easier? Maybe. Well, I think, yes, the drug does make it easier. I think one thing to your point of it feels impossible is remember that the brain, it's driven for pleasure, but it also is like, how can I make things really efficient for you? And I've made it really efficient for you to know that these things are really exciting and you don't have to think about it. It's like, oh, wait, we come out of our thing. We're like, oh, but I do need to balance this out with X, Y, and Z. And that is hard. Well, it is hard because now you have to create new thoughts and your brain already did its job of making things really efficient for you to not have to think very much. You know, that's one of its great things for us is to take something that we do frequently and make it as easy as possible so we don't have to think about it very much. And so that way we can use the brain for other things. And so now that we're asking it to do something different, it is going to be harder. And so then, and then you add food, which we all need and love. And that makes it exponentially harder, I think. Yeah. It it feels like there are two roots though. It's like, can I eat broccoli for my nutrition? Yes. I eat Mm -hmm. vegetables every day. Yeah. Can I do that to the degree necessary for me to no longer be obese? I don't have a lot of faith that I can. Yeah. Well, the question is, I ask is you have a number that your body is, you have a size that it is, but do we actually know what's under the hood and actually is your weight causing you health problems? And if it's not, then it's like, we need to shift the other aspect of it, which is, it's just a size that society has determined. But if you'd been around, if you'd lived your life, this lifetime, 200 years ago, you'd be just fine your size would be socially acceptable. In fact, cherished. Well, it'd be a lot harder for me to be the 220 pounds that I am. I just said my weight on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. And though the sizes were bigger, a waist body was not considered to be beautiful. And so people were bigger on purpose. Or didn't try to get their bodies. And how did they smaller. do that? How did they get there without all the delicious things we have today? <laughs> what were they eating? Tabulka. I don't know. I mean, I think they were eating, you know, just the same. I think that not all the same, but, you know, breads and things existed, treats existed, sugar existed. But so there was a quantity, but then maybe there was activity, but, you know, maybe people weren't over exercising or trying to restrict their food. You know, that just was like, they just lived their life and they ate things and then they were done. You know, yes, the Greeks and Romans, if they were really wealthy, would have those eating fests and they would overeat. But, you know, I would think if you were a woman of that time, too, you probably weren't doing manual labor. Like you got to rest and chill. Yeah. So it's just as like how much of the environment is influencing your weight and is a good portion of that your actual natural weight. And maybe like the rest of us, you know, the our environment has created a little bit extra, but not to the degree that we all think it is. Well, even though your environment is your environment, you still have some control. Not if you live in a food desert and not if you're lacking in income sources, but for someone who's thinking about maybe paying for a drug, you can afford to source foods that are nourishing. Yeah. And we don't have to succumb, but it's a mental challenge. Yeah. So 
they talked about sensory specific satiety, mm-hmm. which means like we can get full on a type of food. So like you might be eating mashed potatoes and gravy until you feel sick. But <laughs> then if I were to be like, I don't know, Beth, what's your favorite dessert? Brownies. Yeah, your oh, deli, yeah. brownies. deli brownies. Yeah, your if I was like, brownies, I know yeah. you just ate no, like this good, insane right. amount of mashed potatoes and gravy, but like I just made these warm Ghirardelli brownies. Would you like one? Like your brain is like, oh yeah, <laughs> I can make room for that. But if I offered you more mashed potatoes and gravy, you'd say no. So we kind of have this part of our brain. It's called sensory specific satiety where we are willing to take in extra calories when it's a different type of food. And so this comes back to the hyper palatable foods, which we often will say like, oh, I just had popcorn. It's like, oh, I had something salty, crunchy. Now I want something soft and sweet. And because our brain likes that and because we have tens of thousands of more options, like that is also easier and it makes it easier to consume those extra calories more often. Hmm. Carrie, what are your thoughts on all of this that we just spilled out at? Yeah. Just like dark places. Just <laughs> triple dark. Just what's your dark thought? Yeah. What's, what your darkest darkest yeah right? what's the dark thought? So I am one of those people who like, I am overweight, but I have no health. I mean, while I'm going through IVF, which it also mm-hmm. sort of informs some of this, but I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have high cholesterol. I don't, if you look at my blood work, you wouldn't necessarily know that I'm overweight. It's more that I am gaining weight at a rapid rate. And I'm starting to see like, I'm getting heartburn a lot that I didn't used to, or maybe I'm more winded in a situation that I didn't used to be. I'm having a hard time figuring out if when I think about if I can eat in a balanced way, yes, I can. And I do. Yeah. But when I think about wanting to lose weight, to not be obese, largely, I mean, really just for aesthetics, I don't really believe that that's possible for me without weight loss drugs. So that's what I'm thinking. Like when we're talking about grocery stores and the food that's available to us and all that stuff, I'm just thinking, I'm even thinking about my friends who are mostly overweight And I don't really know anybody who has lost weight and kept it off. I literally can't think of one person in my personal life that's not an influencer or something. Yeah. I would say, like, well, what's interesting to me is, one, if you're going through IVF and hormones, it is, like, as a wild ride. Like, no one's weight stays normal in that, what's normal for them in that process. So that's number one. And it's also been years. I mean, I've been doing this since 2019. Yeah. So it's been lot. four years. No, but if you think about the hormone cycles the, for the processes, right? So it's just a continual like burr, 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 up mm-hmm. and down of it. And I do know people that did the same thing on IVF and it did have the same thing on their bodies as well, regardless of what size that they started at. So it's like what was normal for them. And so that hormone fluctuation is number one, right? So it's like taking that into account. I think Jessica would agree. We would continue to challenge you on if you didn't get winded and you didn't get heartburn or anything like that and you still ate balanced and your blood work was all great, do you still want to change your size? And why, you know, it's just continuing to question the why on changing your size if all things were great. I feel like I, in the past, have known that the answer to that is supposed to be no. And the answer to that is yes. Yeah, I know. And so then that's the thing is like keeping to finding that challenge for people sort of brings me a level of sadness because it's just like, well, if everything is great and like your body technically feels good, you have no heartburn, all your blood work is great, like you don't get winded, all the things. And then it's just as a size thing because it's like, What if like in 50 years, we all decide that like the Twiggy look is finally dead and everybody just gets to like have their bodies just to be the way that they are. I'll be dead. (laughs) Just kidding. I'll get to see it. (laughs) So it's just as like, that would be the thing is like, I think that's like, we all have our thing that we have to work through in life. And unfortunately, some 
people work a little bit longer on their relationship with their body. I mean, it's not to say that I haven't had that issue. I have. Well, it's so fascinating, too, because we just talked about vanity yeah. and why we do other things. And it's like, yeah, where is the line? I don't. We don't get to decide that for anybody. But Mm-mm. No, we don't. You know, I'd always just encourage people to keep doing the inputs as healthfully as possible. Like, can things come from a positive mindset? What does keep doing the inputs? What do yeah, you so like, you know, you're talking about at the beginning, it was like about consistency of getting food together for the week. So you have like balanced food throughout the week and just consistently doing the things. And so that's the inputs, right? So what are the things I can consistently do for myself that looks like that because the crumbles will lie where they lie or the chips will fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess is how they say it. I think for a long time, I was like, really believed that I could get there, get to a point where I didn't, the desire to lose weight no longer existed. And yeah. I, looking back, feel like that is naive. When Jessica was speaking earlier about food rebellion, I think about all the inputs that I have all a different kind of input that I have all day long. It's one thing at a size 12 or at a size 14 Mm -hmm. at a size 20. Mm -hmm. I now I'm walking into stores. Clothes no longer fit me. I have to go into (laughs) specialty stores in order to find a dress to wear to a wedding. Mm -hmm. I'm having this experience of like trying to make changes that will result in weight loss And I'm hearing from the research that I'm doing, I'm seeing that science doesn't have, at least from my perspective, I'm not seeing something that consistently works for a variety of people, you know, in a prescriptive way. It just feels like it's a huge ask. And I don't know anybody who's done it. What is the huge ask? Let me make sure I understand that right. I think the ask is like, what's the likelihood that I'm going to get to a place where I no longer want to lose weight? Mm, Well, that's not for me to decide, right? Isn't that our personal journeys, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and what's fascinating, at least in my experience and Beth's experience, is once you kind of get out of that headspace is usually when your habits become more consistent and then you lose weight. (laughs) Once you get out of the headspace of wanting to lose weight. Yeah, because when you're like stressed, nothing plateaus weight loss more than stressing about weight loss. Like it is part of the mindset part, which in this podcast that we're referencing this episode, they don't talk about mental health or mindset at all. And when you brought up the IVF part, I'm like, it's not just the hormones, it's the stress and like the mental health of it all, right? It's like, and yeah, asking someone to cope with those big emotions without food to me, that's kind of a big ask, right? And it's like, are you in a place where you feel like you can do that or not? And like, can you shelf that until you feel like well enough to be able to say, yeah, I'm willing to go head on with this emotional relationship with food and say that I don't need to be using food to fix feelings. Because I think that if we can say I'm willing to not use food to fix feelings and see what happens to my body when I do that, we don't know. It's not the exact same for everybody. But just getting out of that habit will tell us a lot. And then, yeah, I think that with the weight loss drugs, it kind of like, it's like, I'm picturing like the claw of like the toy, you know, it just like picks it up and puts it away. So when you're on like, you know, one of those weight loss drugs, like it kind of does dull the need to eat, especially appetite suppressant. Yeah, right? so, yeah, it has a version. So you don't have to address the feelings. You don't have to address the emotional state because it just kind of does that for you. Yeah, you'll still but, emotionally eat. You just can't eat as much because you'll get sick. Yeah. <laughs> That's essentially but what But people happens. are also describing that they don't feel that charge or the draw. Some of the like mind... Some people don't, but uh, I do know people that are on it that do. That's mm-hmm. still there. It's just not as much. You just li- you physically just can't do it as much hmm. because you will feel sick. So it's like it's so solving it does- the problem of eating less and reducing calories, but it's not solving your emotional relationship with food. Right. So 
Um, yeah. Okay. And what's interesting is, is that I know that we are short on time, but I will say what's interesting about Ozempic and those GLP-1 drugs is that not everyone loses a significant amount of weight. I've said this before and I'll continue to say it again. We are seeing some people that are losing, it looks like a miraculous amount of weight, but by and large, that's not the main that's not the thing that it's, it was meant for. It was meant to help with insulin and glucose balance. And so some people do lose the 11 to 20 pounds that gets them back into a healthy metabolic state, which is what the drug was designed for. And then it got this whole other life. Of being- which is a good point. It's like if you lost 20 pounds on the drug, would you be happy? Yeah, we were talking about this before. I don't think I would do Ozempic or Wagovi. I'm more looking at the future and like doing research yeah. about different, like the terzepatides and stuff. Because it's not yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's like, yeah, it's like our brain goes to these places. But then when we address it, you're like, well, what if we just did it? Because I, I had asked Carrie on our call. I was like, why not just do it? Like if your brain is going here, like why not just let yourself do it? <laughs> She's like, I don't want to. I have a pros and cons list. Yes. One of the big cons is it's just like not effective enough for me to take risks right now. Yeah. Yeah. So to your credit, I want to go over this last point that they talk about in the podcast because this is huge. And I do think that this is probably one of the major root issues of if we are thinking about obesity as a disease, which is the body fat and hormones. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, why not just take away all the exciting foods? What if we did just fix our food environment and we went back to like 1930. <laughs> we we all eat. had our own farms in yeah, the backyard. Yeah. What if we just did that? And they said in lean people, um, they were they did this study where they only gave people really bland. It was like a bland drink. It was not even real food. It was just completely bland liquid diet. And they said in lean people, they maintained normal calorie intake with the bland food experiment. However, people with obesity, their calorie intake just plummeted because their motivation just went down into the dumps and they're like, we're out. So reducing these types of foods, yes, actually does work for fat loss and health overall. But it's not doing us any, what did I because say? Because the foods aren't doing us any favors outside of pleasure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's because they're not doing us any favors outside of pleasure. Because it's like they're not doing anything for us. We're not getting any nourishment from them. So, yeah, I don't know. We talked about like leptin or we haven't talked about leptin on this, but Beth and I, Beth, in our online course, Beth does talked about it in uh, module on body fat. The, fat. the book review we talked about. Oh, yes. But we did talk about it in the book review. So it's like. Okay, your hypothalamus has an idea of how much fat it wants you to have on your body. And it compares that idea to your circulating leptin, which is a hunger hormone. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where that idea of set point comes from. This process or mechanism of your body with your hormones is better at protecting you against weight loss than weight gain. So that's why people continue when they regain, they often regain more because your body is like literally fighting to maintain that weight. So to your credit, to me, that's the part that sounds impossible. Even if you do lose weight, your body and your brain are literally fighting against you to try to make you regain the weight. Yeah. That is why weight loss doesn't last for long periods of time it is because the brain is working so hard and you know you're just like at some point you're just like it's hard to fight against that because the drive to eat is there talking all the time and to some degree it's beyond your control and i think that that is the very hardest part for all for everyone And I also think some of it is genetic, like there is that influence of what are our genes and then how are those genes influenced by the environment. And by the environment, I don't mean just food. We have chemicals that shift how we metabolize foods and how it has a chemical burden on us and then those impact our hormones. And so it's not just about food. It's not. There's so, so, so many things that we really have to take into balance and, you know, like our gut bacteria and stuff. It's tough. It is. It's really tough. So they used this example of like if you took someone who weighed 150 pounds kind of naturally, that's just like their set point versus someone who dieted down from 200 to 150, how 
the person who dieted down, like their body is in constant defense mode trying to get back to, get back to, to 200 to versus yeah. 150. And so I find that fascinating because of that mental chatter, I guess. And like, can that change? But also I think that defense mechanism, the faster you lose the weight, isn't the stronger the defense mechanism, right? So if you were losing slowly, so I I have a client who's probably losing on average like half a pound a week and it's driving her insane because it's so slow, (laughs) right? (laughs) But it's like, no, this is a good thing because this is the type of weight that stays off, right? Versus if you lost 10 pounds and 30, like, you know, I haven't really heard anybody talk about keto, especially now in this weight loss drug phase, but it's like there was a time where people were really into fast weight loss. And to me, that's the part where it's like, yeah, if you want to lose 10 pounds in 10 days, great, but you're going to regain it and then some in 10 days because your body is like, what is happening? So the low and slow to me is always going to be better, but your brain, yeah, is still going to be defending. And does it ever go away? So they said for some people it does. They're like some people, and that might be the genetic component to it, is like, yeah, that voice will eventually quiet down. And then now you're kind of back. You're, you are the normal 150 person. Mm-hmm. But for some people, it might never. I don't know if they said this, but I was thinking about like comparing it to someone who has alcoholism, right? It's like I can go – do I like alcohol? Yes. But I could go days, weeks, months without not drinking and it's not a big deal. And it's like, is that urge and desire for food the similar, you know, because they're like, we can't really be addicted to food. There's a whole conversation. I disagree with that. Yeah. So it's like, is it food addiction? Like when I think of that, it's like, what is happening in your brain? Are you having this constant chatter? Yeah. And what is your, and what is your relationship with hunger? I think sometimes that's a whole other topic, but I was like thinking about as far as leptin goes and our relationship with hunger and somebody who is quote unquote, naturally 150. I would love to see a study on hunger and how like, how often do I feel hungry? And it's just like the low hum of hunger. And then I'm like, I'm fine because I know I'm about to have a meal in an hour and it's not a big deal to me versus someone who feels intense urges and anxiety when they feel physical hunger. Do you know what I'm saying? Because they did lose weight or they're in process of or just in general. Any. It's just like our – like, you know, I I do have a client who is like, my hunger is so insatiable. It's not normal. There's nobody with hunger like me. And I was like, I don't know if that's true. Like, like how how would we know if it's true? I can't compare my hunger to your hunger really unless we did some kind of very psychological study with buzzers or something. I don't know. But – I know that sometimes people feel very uncomfortable with the sensation of physical hunger and that yeah. can often cause problems because then they feel like they need to eat even though maybe they just ate 30 minutes ago or whatever. So it's not like, oh, we shouldn't eat when we're hungry. I want to be really clear about that. But I think sometimes if we're having consistent, constant hunger, like sensations of hunger, then that's not helpful either. No. And then I would be like a much larger hormone study needs to be done that can't be done at a regular doctor's office like that is like what is happening with leptin what's happening with some of these other cues of hunger because like that's where a lot of the research was done in the late 90s when they figured out they were looking for the obesity gene and it was turned out to be leptin and leptin obviously has so many more things than creating excess fat but it's really intense. And so I think that when people say they have insatiable hunger, it's like there's many layers to it. And one of the layers should be let's rule out things that are causing leptin to go awry, which is it can be very genetic. So which can we just point out that this hunger hormone that is so important to our relationship with food and our bodies was only discovered in the 90s, which in my mind, the 90s was yesterday. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Just last week, I was bobbing to the 90s. But like in the grand scheme of medical research and science, it really is not that long ago that we're just discovering some of this stuff. These very important components to... And how- still haven't even figured it all out. I mean, they haven't even solved menopause. There is so much unsolved. <laughs> Wait, solved menopause? How do you solve how do you, I was saying, how do you what, solve what, what, it? You like mean, when it's solved. You mean like, like the... Well, just like how do you make people more comfortable? Like forget Ozempic. Like how can we 
help women get through menopause without oh, okay. just make you know? people feel more yeah yeah <laughs> i was like so of menopause I'm like really no, i gotta no. keep bleeding forever why no, no, no. <laughs> like, how, can we, how do we shorten perimenopause how do we make it more comfortable like what is this what is the deal yeah to be like suck it up it's fine to feel crazy it's fine everything's fine I'm going to move on to this next one, which is they talked about the relationship between body fatness and health and if they actually are related. So in this podcast, the person says yes and no, but the metabolic consequences do vary per person, right? So in some people, it might manifest as diabetes. Some people, it might manifest as high cholesterol. Like there's so many metabolic functions that are in relation to body fatness and Again, I don't think there's enough research to show that like at exactly this body fat percent, you are going to end up with this exact issue. Like that doesn't exist. Which Um, is kind of goes to my thing of like when I asked, you know, like you're saying your blood, if you looked at your blood work, you would be considered healthy. And so then it's like, well, the issue just comes down to for a lot of people, what's considered good looking for that cultural norm. Yeah. I have a question on like when you hear about like the leptin chitter chatter, like what are your thoughts on that, Carrie? Like if you were to think about like leptin being a source behind a reason why somebody's brain is like constantly talking to them about food, like what is that? Like how does that land with you? Does that like be like, oh, I wonder if that's part of what I feel or just kind of curious what your thoughts are on it? That makes total sense to me. I also think of genetically and like I think about my parents, my grandparents, mm-hmm. I don't have siblings, looked like me, tended to think like me about food. So yeah, that all makes sense to me. But is it like, are you saying like, oh, well, if that's true, then you should understand this. No. You should be coming to this logical conclusion. No. I'm just curious what your oh. thoughts are. Yeah. Because for some people, it's like, well, that's all fine and good. But or some people are like, oh, well, this helps me when this feeling comes up and da 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 da. So it just I was just like kind of curious because everybody takes this kind of information very differently. And so since you're on this general journey of like, are yeah. we, you know, can I ask Carrie a question? You don't if you answer it here, we don't have to air it. <laughs> if you don't want to. <laughs> So I'm just curious, like, what do you think is the highest impossibility or the biggest struggle knowing what you know, like scientifically, like, oh, if I were to just like really reduce my intake of sugar and processed foods, this could really potentially impact my body. Where is your brain landing with that hypothesis that that could potentially give you the result that you're looking for? Well, I think it's funny that you said, like, from all you know, scientifically, because I had to take chemistry three times in college. (laughs) So I don't know anything about science. I know that I read things and listen to podcasts about and listen to like doctors talk about weight loss. The big takeaway that I'm getting is because of genetics, because of what's available to me, because of how Americans eat and like the growth in obesity over time, the likelihood that I will sustainably be able to engage in a practice that takes my weight to a level below obesity, like in practice is so unlikely. Knowing that having just answered it that way, do you feel like you could ever come to peace with that? I feel like I have been on that journey for a while and I'm more peaceful about it. Mm -hmm. Again, I know this isn't the right answer and I really like to people please. So I'm very tempted to just like give you the right answers. Oh, I don't want that. Thank you. Um, But I guess I'm looking down the road and seeing the drugs in the future that will be more effective. If these drugs exist, I won't have to. Mm. Maybe. But then I'm thinking about, well, what are the side effects of that? How much do we know? You know, I, it's not like I'm like, here's my arm, you know, like put the needle in. I'm like, I'm thinking. Yeah. Please let me be in the trial. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot of happy people on these drugs. They're like, it's working. But again, we're still in the early 
moments of yes. it. Like they're seeing like and can some you of these stay, results. How long can you stay on them for one financially, yeah. two side effects, three, so many other questions. You know, it's like how long can you really stay on them when you don't have blood sugar and insulin issues that keep you on them? And like what happens? I mean, I was telling Beth, like, so my mom had dementia and it, towards the end of her life, she would fall and she would end up in the hospital and they'd take her off all of her meds. And every time it happened, things would get so terrible. And I, I just, I mean, I understand why they did it, but I just wonder like, okay, so I ever end up, I start taking this med, I take it for 10 years and I end up with cancer or I get in a car accident and I'm, nobody can talk to me and nobody knows that I'm on the drug. And for whatever reason, they take, I have to go off the meds for a number of reasons. Then what happens? Like that really. Yeah. Well, the current thing is, is the people that are taking them for the quick fix of it all, they're gaining the weight back because the GLP-1 hormone is no longer suppressed. And so their regular hunger comes back. Hmm. Oh, you're saying when they stop taking the drug? Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think if it look, I mean, from what I'm seeing, it looks like if you're going to do it, you're, you can plan on doing it for life. Yeah. Or trying to do it for life. Well, it becomes one of your inputs, literally. Hmm. But there's also like all these other inputs that you also have control over. So I don't know, it's interesting because Beth had asked, like, at what point do people plateau? Or at what point do the benefits start to become the risks? So, like, we're talking about somebody who maybe, she was like, do they just continue to lose weight forever? It's like, no, at some point, your body, like, is going to have to, yeah, it's going to have to preserve itself. And I was telling her, I listened to this podcast, and the podcaster, the host, was talking about her experience with it. She's really happy. But then she was saying how like now her hair is falling out. Like she just casually mentioned that her hair is falling out because she's losing all this weight. And I was like, that's not really why your hair is falling out. Your hair is falling out because you're lacking nutrients. Yeah, I get um, I hear that. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't, that's a little, that sounds a little crazy to me. And I'm not interested in taking a drug that, that depletes my hunger so much that I start losing my hair. Like that's not, that doesn't well, interest me, but I also think that there's a way to take the drug. Yeah. You know, and not, I mean, what I'm seeing is people get to their goal weight and then they're changing how much of the drug they're taking and they're working with their doctor to decide how they want to proceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we said this literally the last episode, which was your habits are your habits. So the drug is just going to reduce the quantity of your habit, I guess, or the amount of the habit. But if you have bad habits, you're still going to have bad habits with or without a drug. So if you've been living off of, I mean, this is not you and I know that it's like, if you're just living off fast food or whatever, it's like, yeah, you're just gonna eat less fast food. But is that really healthy long term? So yeah, there are health benefits to losing certain amounts of body fat. But if you're not inputting the nourishment and the nutrients that you need through real food at some point, like, what's going to happen long term. So still practicing the consistency of, yes, I like to do a little bit of menu planning, go grocery shopping, have food in the house, make sure that I'm getting in the broccoli, even though my brain wants the onions, you know, it's like, to me, that still all has to be addressed. Yeah, I like long term success. Yeah, I like working with people on the drug and still doing the work. Because should they need to get off or so in some other way, then to me, it's like we talk about and a lot. Well, this is where I also want the and is I want people to be, they're going to do the drug and let's learn the other aspects to it all. I just don't like the whole up and down of it all and the abuse of something for the sake of the quick fix. I just am like, okay, well, but that's, for any diet, keto, low fat, low calorie, whatever, all of it. So just like, let's learn some things about ourselves in the process, regardless what you choose. I know that we're short on time, but one thing I'm just really thinking about this question that you guys asked me about, you know, maybe then it is to work on the body image and sort of like accepting I am healthy. I am good. Maybe it's time to let go of this idea of having a smaller body. And I think like, I feel like I've been working on that for maybe like, that's really been a focus of mine for maybe four or five years. And I don't totally know how to put it into words, but I'm like, 
starting to get kind of angry <laughs> about people wanting me to like I feel like I sort of feel like I'm swimming in this vat of poison and people are like well just hold your breath and I'm sort of like I'm in a vat of poison you know what I mean like yeah but that's like your imaginary vat of poison like I see that you're just like swimming in a beautiful pool or something like I don't know what this metaphor is but it's like you're the one that sees it as poison you mean like no, but, but the poison is like society. The poison is like all of the different oh, right. things that like are coming at us about weight as women all day, yeah. every day. And we want you to hold your breath and pretend like none of that stuff exists and you should just fluff it off and be like, oh. Yeah, or like, or not pretend it, it exists, but like hold myself to this higher standard where I can like evolve it is hard. And if you want to get there, then you do have to evolve. I mean, that's just, this is like kind of accepting what is and being realistic about life. But I'm like, how about I just don't evolve? That's an option. It is an that option. That I give every client. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you don't have to be here. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. Can't just, but that's also the self-acceptance part of it too. They're like, it all comes with acceptance because if you truly did not want to evolve, then you wouldn't still be on the journey that you're on. I mean, I think I would love to evolve, but I'm five years into evolution and I'm like, there's still a lot of poison I'm looking at. That's how you know you're right where you're supposed to be. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think anger is the appropriate response to all of it. It's like, we're angry at the food environment. We're angry at our culture and our society and just being a woman. <laughs> mad about it <laughs> yeah like i don't want to be ambitious when you were talking about ambitious what i describe myself as ambitious is like i went through this whole journey with like law school and being a lawyer and is that what i want blah 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 and i decided that i wanted to be ambitious in my personal life and not my professional life and so like when we're talking about doing this hard thing like i don't want to be ambitious that way i want to be ambitious in like help my niece figure out what it is to become a young adult. I want to be ambitious in how I spend my time volunteering. I want to be ambitious in all the countries that I see. I'm really sick of spending energy trying not to want to lose weight. How about I just lose the freaking weight? It's kind of where I feel right now. Yeah, well, then why don't you? Because I feel like I can't because 95% of people who try and undertake losing weight through in like food intake and exercise don't do it it's interesting because you keep pointing to this 95 <laughs> imaginary 95 percent. you're like because they didn't do it i can't because i haven't been able to because the research that i'm looking at indicates that americans aren't able to they continue to become more and more obese and because nobody i know has been able to and so honestly like it's playing at me because i will try and make some changes and this is like this is the voice that's like people can't do this this is why I well, as long as you tell yourself exists. yeah but as yeah. long as you tell yourself that you can't do it you're not gonna do it correct yes but i would argue that like science literally indicates that i can't do it indicates <laughs> from but there's actually but there are other there are actually a lot of studies where people do lose weight and they do maintain they don't lose they don't maintain the full weight loss because there is always a little bit of a rebound, but there's a whole national health, a whole national weight loss registry full of successful people. And they interview that group quite a bit about like, well, what was successful? And it is quite possibly, it is a long haul game. Oh my God. Send me the link. Where are well, they? You, you listen to them. Corinne's podcast, right? Yes. You love uh -huh. Corinne. She helps people lose 100 pounds. She has a whole group of people, and she's literally just doing it, doing all the things that you already know how to do. I don't want to argue with you. <laughs> yeah. I know, but I'm just, it's like, it's. I mean, like, I can tell you if you want to hear it. <laughs> I can tell you, but. Yeah. 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 So I just. Uh, I, yeah, my thoughts are. People that are doing it, we just don't hear about them more and it's never extreme. And so I think that the shininess of that doesn't get publicized. It is like it is more of like a really small and then for the long term. And it is, you know, all these little inputs. 
but we have to define what is actually true weight loss for us. What is our natural weight? And then if you were to keep it all, but I don't know, I just think that there has to be a level of it. My, I have, you have to find the level of acceptance of my body is what it is no matter what. And I am allowed to change, but you can't change when you're thinking about it constantly, how much I want it to change. Like change will come, but it has to be a part because you're doing the things because you identify as a person that eats this mostly this way. And you identify as a person that moves their body in this way because it feels good to you and you want to be able to get up off the floor when you're 90 years old and you fall or whatever. Like you have to create the identity and the identity can't be how do I just get smaller because Mm -hmm. that is not how people are going to lose weight. So would you say that you think when I'm talking about this 95%, maybe that's a way to think about it is if 90, I don't want to focus on those things. I don't, I do want to do it the way that you're talking about. And I feel like that's the way that I try to think. And I'm not thinking every second of every day, God, what a fat slob. But maybe one way to think about it is like, that is not how people generally think about losing weight. Um, And so that's one of the many reasons why people are having a hard time doing it. Correct. Yes. Was that the answer you thought we wanted to hear? Because that was a great answer. (laughs) Well, I do think you want to hear that answer. But I guess my question to you is like, in your mind, are you like, oh, these weight loss drugs exist and people are going so bonkers for them? Because why? Like if weight loss is available to all of us. It seems like a quick fix and everybody wants a quick fix. Everybody wants the shiny ring yesterday. Nobody but, wants but you, to do but you the told hard me work. It's not quick. It's not for quick. some people. It's not quick. For some people, it is. The people that you know struggle with actual glucose and insulin balance, it is not quick. It is a slower road because they are fixing a metabolic process, which is what the drug was for. Hmm. It just happened to be that they found these other great side effects, sort of like how Wellbutrin was an antidepressant or they found they may. Yeah, they found that Wellbutrin helped people with antidepressants and they also quit smoking. So then they just repackages it as like an anti-smoking thing. But it was the exact same drug. Mm-hmm. They just find other reasons. I mean, let's talk people about Botox. That's the it. biggest off-label drug ever. Mm-hmm. We're like, we invented Botox for these other reasons, but then we realized it like got rid of wrinkles and now we're billionaires. <laughs> like. Yeah. So there's all sorts of reasons, but I don't want anybody to spend an exorbitant amount of time, you know, worrying about what their body size is. I really want people to be like doing the things, finding your, helping your knees be, become a human, like to go explore things about other countries. Like I, I want people's brains to stop going down the pathway of like, how can I make this body look different? Because that is being trapped in a, a, a mind that is not expanding. You're literally trapping yourself in an ego mind. I feel like the last 20 minutes have been like, so lovely. It's this always I felt this way in coaching too, <laughs> that it's like the first half hour, it's like you kind of just put the I'm time in because you know, it's really the last 10 minutes that are gonna matter. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like you're because you're peeling back layers, right? It's like mm. just one layer and one layer and one layer, and then you know, also the willingness to listen and be asked questions and answer your own questions. I think you get better at it throughout the time. I think we'll that's all we out. got. Yeah, I want to do this again. By the way, I find this to yeah. be super, super <laughs> fun and helpful. And if you ever want to do this again, all you- day. All day, yeah. every day. I love it. Yeah. Thank you for letting me push because it yeah. that it's everything to me. Because I listen to your podcast and I'm like, but what about that? But they didn't say anything about this. But and your responses when I push are, I just like thank you for taking the time and sharing your intelligence with me. I can't thank you enough. So thank you. Oh. Well, if you ever have those about the things, like send us the questions because it would be fun to do updates to podcasts because I know that we don't hit all the points, right? Yeah. And so it'd be so fun to be like, and here's an update. We can't Not tell you how many times that Beth will text me or I'll text Beth and be like, we forgot to talk about the one thing. And it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. Like, we could literally do like a long three hour podcast, but we're not here to do that. So yes, please send us questions, but we loved having you. And again, it's like, no, thank you. 
I think, though, there's a lot of people in your mind, Carrie, who are like, I want to push back on these thoughts, too. And so we just appreciate it because we're only in our brains, right? It's like yeah. we're we're in this together. But, yeah, we're like kind of on the other side of the glass mirror or whatever. So it's nice to have other brains involved in the conversation. Well, anytime. I love it. I love talking to you. So please okay. ask me back. I'll say yes. It's always good to see you. And you're, are you going to join us inside Foundations? I am. I am. This week has been coming back to life after COVID, but next week I'm committing. All right. We'll see you inside the course. Thanks for coming. Bye, everyone.